This is a vacation bonus feature from Medieval Death Trip for July 2019. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Since the regular show is on hiatus this month while I'm in the process of moving house, I thought I'd post this special treat in lieu of July episodes. What you're getting here is the commentary track I made for the film Dragon Slayer, which I originally released just to our Patreon supporters earlier in this year. I'm putting it out for general release now, uh, partly because I thought it could be fun summer vacation content, uh, and also because it was a lot of work, uh, and there are no official commentary tracks for this movie, and only a handful of other fan-made ones up on YouTube, so it feels like a bit of a public service to put this out into the wider world. And I hope my patrons won't mind sharing a little bit. Uh, after all, the bonus content is meant to be just that, a little gratuitous extra on top of the main content you're supporting. A little thank you gift back. And so now this commentary track is being promoted to a little thank you gift to all my listeners. Uh, alas, I cannot give you a free copy of Dragon Slayer to go with it, um, but it is fairly readily accessible on Amazon Streaming and Hulu uh, and YouTube uh, for a price, uh, and disc copies are cheap too, for those of you still into physical media. I will quickly note, if you've just put this on for a viewing party or what have you without previewing it, um, before we get to the commentary track proper, there is a rather lengthy introduction, uh, practically a mini-episode of the show unto itself, which includes a reading of the legend of St. George and the Dragon. If you want to skip straight to the commentary, then you'll need to jump ahead to around the 18-minute mark. You'll hear me say a different time in just a few moments in the recording itself, uh, but ignore that. That time is wrong now because this additional little preface has added time to it. If you do enjoy this and aren't one of our Patreon supporters, I hope you'll consider becoming one. Uh, I plan on making more commentary tracks on medievalish movies as patron bonuses, uh, and don't count on them all eventually appearing on the main feed like this one. This one's a bit more like a promotional giveaway to encourage patronage. Uh, the end of July will mark our one-year Patreon anniversary, uh, and in that time, over 60 of you have become patrons. In the next year, I hope we can maybe break into the triple digits for the first time. If you're interested, you can find out more at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. And now I'll cede the floor to my past self, who will kick things off with the original introduction to the Patreon post. Welcome to a special bonus feature from Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and this is the first commentary track we've made for the movie Dragon Slayer, released in 1981. For those of you who have never downloaded a commentary track before, uh, be it a serious one or something like Riff Tracks, 
very briefly, here's how it works. Um, you'll put the movie up on your screen, whether you rent it, own it, or stream it, and listen to this commentary on an audio device. And if you start the movie playing when I say, my comments will be synchronized with the film. If you don't have access to the movie, you could maybe just listen to this. If you know the movie well, that would probably still be a reasonably enjoyable experience. Um, if you haven't seen the movie, it's probably not going to be very coherent. Uh, unlike standard disc commentary tracks, I won't be able to lay in the actual movie audio quietly in the background for copyright reasons. So if you're listening without the movie, be aware that there will be a few long silences while something's happening on the screen uh, before I talk about it. And another word of caution, uh, like any good commentary track, I'm going to assume you've seen the movie, and there will be copious spoilers. Uh, I'm going to spoil the ending in the very first scene. So if you don't know the movie, you really should go watch it before listening to this. And this is a movie worth getting to know, in my opinion anyway. Um, before I have you start the movie up, uh, let's get a little background on it. If you want to jump straight to the commentary, skip ahead to just under the 15-minute mark. Okay, as I said, Dragon Slayer came out in 1981. The number one grossing movie of that year was Raiders of the Lost Ark, followed by On Golden Pond and Superman 2, an interesting top three. It was also the year of An American Werewolf in London, and The Howling, and Wolfen, a big year for werewolves. Also, Clash of the Titans, Escape from New York, The Evil Dead, The Road Warrior, Time Bandits, uh, The Army Comedy Stripes, and David Cronenberg's Scanners. Uh, not a bad year, especially for some seminal genre films. Uh, and in prestige films, in addition to On Golden Pond, you have My Dinner with Andre, Chariots of Fire, Das Boot, uh, The Four Seasons, Gallipoli, Ragtime, and, of course, Porky's. Uh, Action-adventure movies were still running in the wake of the massive success of 1977's Star Wars, um, as well as The Empire Strikes Back, which came out in 1980. And you see a lot of attempts to capture that same lightning in different shaped bottles, uh, not the least of which would be Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, writers and directors started looking back at older genres and styles for inspiration. After all, look what Lucas and Spielberg were doing with old adventure serials and pulp novels mixed up with Joseph Campbell. And medieval romance and sword and sorcery were an obvious place to go. Dungeons and Dragons was emerging as a cultural phenomenon in the late 1970s, so there was a growing awareness of an audience for that kind of fantasy. As you watch Dragon Slayer, it feels quite polished, or I think so, and it's easy to assume it's the culmination of a trend, one that's been refined. But actually, Dragon Slayer is right there at the front of the line for 80s sword and sorcery. Really, there aren't any notable medievalish fantasy films from the 1970s other than maybe Gowan and the Green Knight from 1973 and Ralph Bakshi's animated Lord of the Rings in 1978. 1981 is really the starting point. You have both Dragon Slayer and John Borman's Excalibur coming out that year. You also see, uh, as a medieval side note, the animated musical adaptation of John Gardner's Grendel, uh, an odd little film titled Grendel, 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 uh, as well as Quest for Fire, which isn't medieval, but is certainly a pretty radical attempt at a period adventure story. Uh, oh, and of course, Clash of the Titans, romping through Greek mythology. All the other iconic fantasy films of the era come after Dragon Slayer. 
1982 gives us not only Conan the Barbarian, but The Beastmaster, Sorceress, and Sword and the Sorcerer. 83 has Deathstalker, Fire and Ice, Krull, and Sword of the Barbarians. 84 yields Conan the Destroyer, Sword of the Valiant, which was a remake of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, uh, and The Warrior and the Sorceress. And 85 alone produces Barbarian Queen, The Black Cauldron, Lady Hawk, Legend, and Red Sonia. Uh, and that's the high point in the trend. It tapers off after that with Willow kind of putting a period on the end of 80s fantasy. And by the way, almost any of those titles I just read off that had Sorceress or Barbarian in them and weren't Conan, uh, you can find them streaming uh, free to Prime members on Amazon at the time of this recording. And I'll say, if you have any doubts about the quality of Dragon Slayer, then watch a few of those and then rewatch Dragon Slayer and be reminded of what a competently made movie looks like. Alas for Dragon Slayer, it may have hurt itself by being a relatively expensive trendsetter. It had a budget of $18 million, the same as Empire Strikes Back, um, but only made $14 million at the box office. The very next year, Conan had a similar budget and made $130 million. To be fair, the movie was not just a victim to timing. It's probably significant that most of the people you find who are big fans of Dragon Slayer are really just fans of the dragon, and certainly that $18 million bought a truly remarkable feat of both special effects and design. What you don't hear are people who really love the characters, or praise the storyline, or repeat all the memorable quotes. Now, over the course of this commentary, I'm going to try to make a case for the rest of the movie beyond just the dragon sequences, because I think there is more to appreciate in it than just that, though those dragon sequences are pretty great, and certainly as a kid, those are what I was fast-forwarding to and replaying again and again, just like most Dragon Slayer fans, apparently. Anyway, I guess I'm not surprised that it didn't do gangbusters at the box office and that it doesn't have the fan base of Conan. But nonetheless, I think it's a shame and a bit of an injustice that it didn't at least make back its budget. I think that is a problem of timing. I mean, just remember all those other amazing adventure films it was competing with that year. I wouldn't blame the kid who decided to go see Raiders of the Lost Ark a second or third time instead of going to see this monster movie with a cast of unknowns, setting aside Ralph Richardson, who, let's face it, isn't going to be a big draw for the tween set. All that said, I think Dragon Slayer has aged quite well, especially compared to many of its fellow 80s fantasy films. My opinions are, of course, deeply tinged with nostalgia. I don't think I saw Dragon Slayer in the theater. I would have been a bit young, uh, three years old in 1981. But I definitely watched it over and over on home video. And I had a cousin who owned the graphic novel adaptation put out by Marvel Comics. And I read and reread that whenever I stayed with him. Uh, and this was the same cousin that introduced me to D&D. And Dragon Slayer and The Hobbit, both the book and the animated film, and D&D sort of all mixed together to create my baseline vision of what fantasy was. You know, Conan was okay, but it didn't have enough wizards and monsters. Beastmaster was too obviously off-brand. Krull, I actually really liked, uh, but was too genre-bending to count. Uh, and Willow was also okay, but it felt like a try-hard wannabe. So Dragon Slayer loomed large in the fantasy canon for me. Before we start the commentary proper, uh, there's one other thing I want to do. So Medieval Death Trip is about medieval texts, and I want to have at least one in our feature. 
The creators of Dragon Slayer did draw inspiration from medieval dragon tales, and chief among them is the legend of St. George and the Dragon. This story appears in many forms. Uh, I'll give you the relatively concise version included in the Life of St. George from the Golden Legend of Jacobus de Voragine, uh, and translated into English by William Caxton. The dragon slaying is the first event of the narrative, so we'll just start at the beginning. St. George was a knight and born in Cappadocia. On a time he came into the province of Libya to a city which is said Silena. And by this city was a stagna, or a pond like a sea, wherein was a dragon which envenomed all the country. And on a time the people were assembled for to slay him, and when they saw him they fled. And when he came nigh the city, he venomed the people with his breath, and therefore the people of the city gave to him every day two sheep for to feed him, because he should do no harm to the people, and when the sheep failed, there was taken a man and a sheep. Then was an ordinance made in the town that there should be taken the children and young people of them of the town by lot, and every each one as it fell, were he gentle or poor, should be delivered when the lot fell on him or her. So it happed that many of them of the town were then delivered, insomuch that the lot fell upon the king's daughter, whereof the king was sorry, and said unto the people, For the love of the gods, take gold and silver and all that I have, and let me have my daughter. They said, How, sir, ye have made and ordained the law, and our children be now dead, and ye would do the contrary? Your daughter shall be given, or else we shall burn you and your house. When the king saw he might do no more, he began to weep and said to his daughter, Now shall I never see thine espousals. Then returned he to the people, and demanded eight days' respite, and they granted it to him. And when the eight days were past, they came to him and said, Thou seest that the city perisheth. Then did the king do array his daughter like as she should be wedded, and embraced her, kissed her, and gave her his benediction, and after led her to the place where the dragon was. And when she was there, St. George passed by, and when he saw the lady, he demanded the lady what she made there, and she said, Go ye your way, fair young man, that ye perish not also. Then said he, Tell me, what have ye, and why weep ye, and doubt ye of nothing? When she saw that he would know, she said to him how she was delivered to the dragon. Then said St. George, Fair daughter, doubt ye nothing hereof, for I shall help thee in the name of Jesu Christ." She said, For God's sake, good knight, go your way and abide not with me, for ye may not deliver me. Thus, as they spake together, the dragon appeared and came running to them. And St. George was upon his horse and drew out his sword and garnished him with the sign of the cross and rode heartily against the dragon, which came towards him and smote him with his spear and hurt him sore and threw him to the ground. And after said to the maid, Deliver to me your girdle, and bind it about the neck of the dragon, and be not afeard. When she had done so, the dragon followed her as it had been a meek beast and debonair. Then she led him into the city, and the people fled by mountains and valleys, and said, Alas, alas, we shall all be dead. Then St. George said to them, Nay, 
doubt ye nothing. Without more, believe ye in God, Jesu Christ, and do ye to be baptized, and I shall slay the dragon. Then the king was baptized, and all his people, and St. George slew the dragon, and smote off his head, and commanded that he should be thrown in the fields, and they took four carts with oxen that drew him out of the city. So there's one version of St. George's battle with the dragon. In fact, the scholarly consensus is that this tale was transplanted onto St. George from the legend of another saint, Theodore of Amaziah. The other most significant medieval dragon slayer uh, for the film is the Norse hero Sigurd of the Volsunga Saga, a text which also served as one of the main sources for Wagner's Ring Cycle. Uh, I won't read that whole episode, uh, but the short version is that there was a dragon named Fafnir, who used to be a dwarf, but took hold of a cursed treasure, and in a reflection of his greediness, transformed into a monstrous serpent. He lives in a cave with his treasure, but ventures out from time to time to drink from a stream. Prompted to try for this treasure by Fafnir's brother, Regan, who still has humanoid form, the hero Sigurd first has a special dragon-slaying sword forged, uh, then goes out to the lair, digs a trench on Fafnir's path to his water supply, and stabs the dragon in the belly when it passes overhead. Then they have a conversation, because this is an intelligent creature, which distinguishes it a bit from the bestial monster we see in the St. George tale, and Sigurd ultimately eats Fafnir's heart and gains the ability to understand the speech of birds. He also gets the cursed treasure, which he takes despite being warned it will lead to his death, because, as he says, everybody dies, so if you're gonna die, might as well be rich. You also have the dragon at the end of Beowulf, who emerges from underground to terrorize the countryside and also guards a hoard of treasure. Tolkien kind of combined Fafnir and Beowulf's dragon to get Smaug, who of course also casts a long shadow over the dragons of modern fantasy. So, with those narrative keystones in mind, it's time to dive into the film. Here's how this will work. You can go ahead and get the movie running on your screen, uh, whether playing it off of a disc or streaming it, or, God help you, playing a tape. Uh, let it start, and once you see the old-fashioned Paramount logo, uh, the one that looks like a painting of a mountain that then turns into a solid blue logo, once that logo has faded to black, hit pause. Okay, so do that now, and pause this until you've got the black screen paused on the movie, and then turn me back on for just a second. Alright, so you've got the movie paused at the black screen. Then on a count of three, unpause it. Three, two, one, unpause. Alright, take a note of the Walt Disney name there. We'll come back to that a bit later. Uh, so this is Peter McNichols' film debut. And according to IMDb, he's not proud of this movie, uh, which I think is a shame. Uh, no doubt he preferred to be associated with his role the very next year in the Oscar-winning Sophie's Choice. And by the way, that is a title that deserves to be on the side of an arcade cabinet. Um, anyway, back to Peter McNichol. Today, of course, he's probably best known for either Ghostbusters 2 or Ally McBeal. Um, and I don't know how he feels about that. Uh, of course... Dragon Slayer was an Academy Award nominee for visual effects and for its original score by Alex North. Uh, Ghostbusters 2, not Academy Award nominated for anything. 
Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, Dragon Slayer comes at the head of a new wave of fantasy films, so it's not surprising that the writer-director Matthew Robbins and his co-writer and producer Hal Barwood don't have any prior credits in fantasy. Uh, well, Barwood had worked on an animated film school short from 1970 called The Walled City of Zan that had sort of techno-fantasy elements, and they'd both worked on Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third, time, third Kind uh, four years earlier, um, but I think they achieve a pretty impressive feat of world-building, given how few cinematic role models or templates they had. It feels like the work of people who are old hands at fantasy. So, the first words we hear are Latin, and all the magical incantations in the movie are in Latin. Uh, a trope not at all invented by this movie, uh, the trope goes straight back to early modern alchemy, uh, and it lives on today in the rather loose Latin of the Harry Potterverse. Uh, interestingly, the shooting script for the film also opens with a Latin incantation, but spoken by Galen, who is practicing his spellcasting uh, without much luck. The change to opening the film with uh, the sorcerer Ulrich is interesting, uh, because there is a kind of question of who the hero of this story is. I mean, Galen is our protagonist, and he has the strongest character arc. He, he is the main character. But in conventional terms, and to get our first spoiler out of the way, uh, Ulrich is the dragon slayer, really. And you can kind of argue that Galen's main character arc is learning that he's not a hero, or at least not the one he fancied himself to be. Uh, okay, speaking of the script, the magic is all in Latin in the script, but it's often quite different from the Latin that's used by the actors on screen. Uh, I would presume that Eric Watts, credited as Latin advisor, went in and improved on the screenwriter's Latin composition skills. Uh, there's also a magic advisor credited, the late English stage magician Harold Taylor, but I expect his contribution was not about spells, um, but about implementing some of the practical magic effects, like the sleight-of-hand tricks that we'll see Galen performing later. And now we have the first English words, introducing us to Hodge and Galen and the Erlanders, led by the boy Valerian. Uh, this is giving us our first real sense of setting, of time and place. So, pedantically speaking, setting is a complete mess in this movie. Uh, you could easily wave aside all quibbles about setting by just saying it's its own fantasy world, like Middle-earth, or the Forgotten Realms, or Greyhawk, or even the mythical Hyborian Age of Conan. But that simple answer is rather complicated by the introduction of Christian missionaries into the story, which means you either have to posit a parallel Christianity in this fantasy world, or assume this is meant to be our world but with fantasy elements, and certainly that appears to be what the creators intended. According to Wikipedia's article on the movie, this is meant to be set in 6th century post-Roman Britain in, I guess, a petty kingdom called Erland. Uh, and note the mythic overtones there, Ur-land, the primordial land. That idea uh, kind of works for the pagan-Christian culture clash that we see, and it ties into the dawn of the Arthur myth. Uh, it works with the Latinate character names, but it does not work with a big stone keep like Ulrich lives in, uh, or the royal castle, or the costumes, or the weapons. Uh, this stuff is all inspired by much later medieval material. 
The production designer allegedly did a lot of research into post-Roman Britain, uh, and I don't doubt it, but clearly the vision brought to screen is mostly a much later 12th, 13th century courtly romance version of perhaps some tale from Dark Age Britain. And in that sense, the anachronism is kind of authentically medieval. And I should say, none of this bothers me. These are just the sorts of things I'd be obligated to call out if I were called as an expert witness on medieval authenticity. Uh, Not that I'm really all that qualified for that. Uh, Take a look at Ulrich's hat here, serpent on it, uh, already being tied into the draconic. Um, And here we're getting a bit about the study of magic. Uh, He's talking about his master... And he tells us, his master was able to change land into gold. Ulrich's never been able to do that. Our first real suggestion that in this world, magic is waning and dying out. Ulrich is a shadow of the sorcerer that came before him. And Galen is really less than a shadow of Ulrich. If we'd had the original first scene, we would know quite clearly that Galen is not doing fine. Uh, And as he picks up the ash, we might also take note that we're going to see some real magic combined with practical fakery. Uh, The flash powder thrown by Galen to enhance his master's entrance... Uh, and the old theatrical sort of thunder sheet that he's about to rattle. But then, after this you know, theatrical trumpery, uh, we have the real conjuring of fire by Ulrich. Now let us have light. And heat. Uh, Dalvesha, not a real place, um, but it gives us that Dark Age mixture of the very Germanic Erland and the sort of Roman province-sounding Dalvesha. Uh, it, it builds that post-Roman setting idea. Now, the script describes these scales as iridescent. Uh, I've always felt like the ones they actually have there look like old tree bark or old fingernails, um, and I think ultimately that was a good choice. As we're about to be told, this is an elderly dragon, and I could see someone being disappointed that the dragon is just a kind of dull, muddy brown in the end, Uh, but I think it suits the story. It just wouldn't work if the dragon came out with a bejeweled belly like Smaug. And I like this bit of world-building here with a list of the other now-deceased magic users, the Meridid sisters and Rinbod. And Ulrich is the last of the wizards.
And here Valerian tells us about the lottery, which is obviously straight out of the legend of St. George. So, this seems very important. Ulrich gives us the bond between dragons and sorcerers, and as in hinted, uh, or as is hinted at, uh, they both, along with magic, seem to be dying together. Um, but neither is fully given up, either. Uh, both are raising up a next generation, um, and I think that's one of the themes of the movie. Both parents' involvement in their children and children, you know, liberating themselves from the parent, uh, at least figuratively speaking, in the case of master and apprentice. And I love this little speech. Uh, it makes the dragon sympathetic, pitiful, as Ulrich says. And of course, he's also talking obliquely about himself and the experience of old age. Uh, minus, I think, the spiteful bit. You don't get much of that from Ulrich. Um, but this reinforces the identity between the last dragon and the last wizard. Uh, we also just got the name of our dragon, Vermithrax pejorative. Vermi means worm or serpent. Uh, Thrax is not really good Latin. Uh, the novelization by a different writer than the screenwriters, Drew Wayland, offers an etymology that says Thrax means from Thrace, which works well enough. So Vermithrax is the worm of Thrace, uh, pejorative, the worsener. Um, I've seen an alternative proposal that Thracian was one of the categories of gladiator, and there's a noun for that that is pretty close to Thrax, which would make Vermithrax mean something like dragon gladiator, or maybe dragon slayer, which would be a fun bit of Easter egg irony. Uh, but you have to stretch it a bit to make it work. Um, personally, I kind of think the screenwriters started with the Latin vermi and added Thrax as just an intimidating sounding syllable, maybe inspired by anthrax, maybe Vercingetorix. Uh, and all the etymologies have been retconned onto it. Uh, speaking of names, here we have Tyrion, the king's right-hand man. Uh, George R. R. Martin has praised Vermithrax as the best dragon shown on film, so he certainly knows this movie. I don't know if he consciously or unconsciously borrowed the name Tyrion for Tyrion Lannister, but it seems plausible. It's not a personal name from history. They are spelled differently. This is Tyrion with an A, and the Lannister has Tyrion with an O, but still. You might also take a quick note at Tyrion's costuming here. Um, we're going to see him in a scene later where he seems covered in fur, and in this first appearance, that cape kind of civilizes him and gives him a, an extra sleekness that sort of disappears a bit in his, in his later scenes. This is also a world skeptical of magic. Except for Valerian. And here we're getting the test of powers, and ultimately the death of the parent or mentor, both common folkloric tropes. 
uh, and the young hero will ultimately avenge this death. Uh, But just a few years before, audiences saw this same basic pattern play out in a little movie called Star Wars, with Darth Vader striking down Obi-Wan Kenobi while Luke looks on helplessly. Um, And a number of reviewers were not kind to Dragon Slayer when it came out, because they perceived it as too much of a Star Wars imitator, uh, one that even went so far as to cast another esteemed veteran English actor in the Alec Guinness role. I think Ralph Richardson is great in this movie. He plays Ulrich with just the right mix of vulnerability and authority. Uh, He has a touch of the wise clown about him. He's a bit more Yoda than Kenobi, Um, but he never becomes foolish or doddering. Uh, Hodge kind of takes up that role. But I also like how in this scene, I think you can feel his confidence wavering a bit. You know, compare this to Alec Guinness saying, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Kenobi is always in control and has perfect zen-like composure as befits a Jedi. Ulrich is at least kind of BSing, and he knows it. that He does have a plan, as we discover, but as we watch this scene, uh, we feel let down by him, uh, as Galen does. Yeah, that is not the voice of perfect confidence. But that's another big theme of this movie, skepticism towards authority. The Master Sorcerer, right here, fails his test. Uh, And the king, as an authority, well, we'll get to the king. I think even if you see this coming, it's still a nice reveal. It's it's played quite well. Disaster. Uh, of course, as all the windows and doors up here in the tower start to reopen... Uh, we're going to get a little sense that Ulrich's presence is not entirely gone. Uh, and that's helped out, I think, by the optimistic tone of the music. Uh, if the music had just sounded of resignation, we might just assume this was all Ulrich's spell wearing off. But it it gives us a clue. Here we get a nice bit of... Uh, how the film codes in some of the contrasts between pagan and Christian culture. Ulrich is cremated on a pyre, which was a pagan practice, uh, although, or not although, often condemned by early medieval Christians. Um, The vestments he's wearing, though, they do smack of a bishop's garb, especially with that little piece that was laid over his eyes that kind of resembles an embroidered stole or even a pallium. Um, He's also linked to dragons, as I mentioned. He's got that uh, fiery headdress. Sorry, he's got that... uh, He's engulfed in fire. He's wearing that serpent headdress at the beginning. And um, as we're about to see, right over the head of our Erlanders, uh, we have these shooting stars, these meteors, these Fiorina Dracon flying over his funeral. Uh, Another sort of Anglo-Saxon link to dragon lore. And the green flame, which is a marker of uncanniness, which I'll talk about a little bit more later. There we are. There's our 
Fjordrin at Drakon. Ravens always signify early dawn, seems like, of a, of a kind of desolate autumnal day. Uh, and that's a nice little note. I don't know how intentional it is, but we have two ravens released from Ulrich's room. So an echo of Norse mythology and Odin's two ravens, Hugin and Munin, thought and memory. Uh, and we have animal bones hanging up, which Lanfranc forbid the British peasantry from hanging up in their homes as magical charms. There's a don't know if that qualifies as a tripod in the background, but a little bit more apparatus. There's our serpent hat. And a mirror. Um, both the mirror and Ulrich's bow, uh, bowl are linked to scrying. Uh, there we have scales, sort of linked to alchemy. Uh, it's a nice little laundry list of medieval magical uh, tropes. And this crystal amulet, of course, which has that same greeny-yellow light that matches the unnatural green flames of Ulrich's pyre. Uh, a motif we also see in the necromantic magic of the Witch King or the Army of the Dead in the Lord of the Rings films. There is an open question about exactly what's in the amulet. Is it Ulrich's spirit? When did it go into the amulet? Did the amulet have power before his death or not? I, I, that's also something I'll come back to a bit later. Um, but you do get the feeling that the amulet has a kind of intelligence here in this scene. So, some people don't like Luke Skywalker for being a whiny farm boy. Uh, as we'll see in this scene, Galen is a bit of a jerk. And he stays a bit of a jerk for most of the movie. Maybe even all of the movie. Uh, as a kid, I love this movie, and I love Star Wars, but honestly, I never really connected with the characters in either one. You know, I was never interested in seeing Galen or Luke as role models or surrogates for myself. I really just cared about the monsters and the aliens. Uh, so re-watching this movie as an adult with a more critical eye, I, I can see that Galen is a weird main character. Um, unlike Luke, I think we're supposed to be a little irritated by his arrogance and hubris, his misplaced self-confidence and how condescending he is to everyone, um, like how he's about to treat Hodge here. Uh, but at the end of the movie, he does kind of figure out what to do, and he's right and Valerian's wrong about when to smash the amulet. Um, well, we're going to get to all that. Uh, but ultimately, his lesson in humility is a bit of a soft one. But this is a cynical movie, and Galen does not escape from that authorial cynicism. Speaking of cynicism, uh, the villager Grail here voices another thread of skepticism of authority. In this case, the authority of wizards, 
as well as that of the young Valerian, who has perhaps overconfidently led them out on this failed journey. Uh, it will be interesting to note where Grail ultimately finds authority in this world by the end of the film. Putting out the fire and the only sort of symbol of warmth in the camp is a slightly odd way to introduce yourself back to the group. Um, I will say Galen's sort of strutting self-confidence here is entirely in keeping with like a Norse saga hero. Sigurd of the Volsunga saga could be saying these exact lines and it would be perfectly in character. Uh, so could Gretter or Egil or Beowulf for that matter. And there's also Galen is a classical name. Brad Warden, very British. So a little cultural syncretism going on. And now we start the first sacrifice. Uh, these dragon heads on the posts are straight off of a Viking longship. Um, they're spot on. Again, tying the Erlanders to a Germanic pagan tradition. Uh, and so this is our first scene of a maiden sacrifice to the dragon. In medieval literature, you have these strong associations of dragons with appeasement sacrifices, and you have strong associations of dragons with virgins, but the specific concept of a virgin sacrifice is not very well attested. Uh, as we see in the St. George tale, the lottery there just specifies children and young people, whose virginity can be assumed, uh, but I think the emphasis is on general youth and innocence, uh, and not specifically their state of sexual experience. Similarly, you'll find maidens being rescued from dragons in chivalric romances, uh, but not usually as part of a formal sacrifice, uh, and their maidenhood is less important because the dragon likes it, and more because it makes them eligible bachelorettes for the knight to win. In fact, if anything, it's far more common to find virgins as dragon slayers. A number of female saints are figured as overcoming dragons, partly because of their purity. There's an association there with dragons being demonic and demons seeking to tempt those who stand to lose the most. So as a representation of carnality, the voracious dragon is a natural opponent for a chaste virgin saint, uh, male or female. In my reading experience, if you really want to find a monster who snaffles up virgins, medieval giants are far worse offenders than dragons. Uh, this virgin sacrificing really starts to appear much more frequently in the later folklore. Uh, it pops up in the stories collected by the Brothers Grimm, and it seems to perpetuate itself uh, much more in the 19th century fairy tale context. Um, I kind of talked through it, but about the lottery ceremony, uh, the legalism of it and the proclamation issued by Chancellor Horsrick uh, is significant thematically, um, as is the way all that formality crumbles as soon as they become aware of the dragon's approach. Uh, you have this performance of authority that disintegrates at the approach of real power, or maybe you could figure it as civilization being weak in the face of raw nature, the superego yielding to the id. As a kid, I found her slipping out of those manacles with this kind of implied loss of skin in the process. 
uh, to be pretty much the most upsetting thing in the movie. Um, it was both psychologically horrifying and physically nauseating. Uh, it just, it really stuck with me. It doesn't quite get me as bad now as, ooh, well, maybe it does. Ugh. And here we're starting to get our dragon. This movie definitely utilizes the Jaws and Alien philosophy of withholding a full view of the monster until much later. Um, effective for budgetary reasons, and I think sort of a kind of aesthetic suspense. Most of the dragon parts that you see in this sequence are all basically life-size props and puppets, uh, something you definitely don't see much of in filmmaking these days. Bit of a King Kong moment there. Uh, now, I will say her grabbing that tail is maybe not the most convincing bit of action uh, that we get in the movie. But again, full-size tail. Really breaking up props on, on set. And this is a little technique they use a number of times, but I love how they... Now they use this intake of breath as a suspense-building intensifier with the music dropping out. Um, we're going to see him use it a couple more times, but for me, it works every time. Hmm, another early morning scene, but no ravens. I guess it's less desolate. Uh, Hodge, of course, has Ulrich's ashes. Uh, this is one plot point that you know, it doesn't really make sense that Ulrich has concealed his plan from Galen and apparently confided it in the only other person sort of most likely to die on the trip, uh, even without a treacherous arrow to kill him. Uh, Ulrich's not teaching, a Ga uh, teaching Galen a lesson with withholding this information, as near as I can tell. Um, and you might note... Ulrich never even asks where Hodge is when he's eventually resurrected. Um, so this bit of plotting, I don't have any good defense of. I guess a bit of trivia that we can't really just skip over. Uh, the IMDB tells me that the sort of shadow of male genitalia you can glimpse here is the only example of male frontal nudity in a Disney film. Um, human male nudity, at least. Uh, so there's that. Oh my gosh, Valerian is a woman. Um, it, it's a little hard to believe any audience was ever actually fooled by that. Even as a six-year-old, I wasn't. Um, but it's enough of a medieval-slash-Shakespearean trope that I think we have to give it some leeway. It is nice that, despite 
you know, showing, I think, reasonable surprise when he's underwater. Galen's pretty chill about this whole cross-dressing reveal here. We'll, we'll touch on that a bit later, too. We never actually find out how Valerian knows that this is true, but it's certainly assumed, well, and I guess proven to be true, at least for the case of the king uh, later on, that the wealthy are cheating the lottery, dodging the draft. So in addition to the amulet kind of revealing itself, this is our first little, um, not, it's not, I guess it's not a first, it's the continuation of the uh, ongoing theme that Galen is really just at the service of powers he doesn't control, that magic is sort of coming to him, uh, it's not really something he's wielding. Uh, and I will say, in contrast to the reveal that Valerian is a woman, uh, this reveal that we're about to see um, of the arrow, I think it works really well. I think it's, a, it's, at least on first viewing, it is a genuinely effective surprise. You assume the vision Galen just had was of the future, of course, and not the present. So, so it works. Uh, we don't expect him to have already failed. The delivery here is is weird, but I like it. It works for sort of someone in shock and dying. Um, uh, I don't think I ever actually understood that Hodge was saying burning water here until just recently when I was watching while following along with the script. I think as a kid, uh, but even more recently, I thought he said, I need water, which is something a dying man would say. Um, but no, of course, this is a vital clue uh, that Galen will require uh, later on in the movie. And there's another example of Galen failing to perform serious magic. Uh, it's a pretty affecting death scene, though, on the whole. R.I.P. Hodge. Guess we don't learn how Hodge is buried, or if he gets cremated, or what, or if he just gets left in the forest. Uh, and I don't know much about nautical history, but I'm willing to bet that that is not an accurate 6th century sailing vessel. Again, I don't care, but I feel like I gotta say it. Um, 
Scenery, of course, plays a big role, I think, in the overall feel of this movie. Most of the locations uh, were shot in North Wales, uh, with uh, only the final scene filmed on the Isle of Skye in Scotland. Uh, And then, of course, a lot was done in studio sets as well. So if that dragon's carved in stone, how long has Vermithrax been in this area, or have dragons always been a problem for Erland? Because we actually find, we do get a little bit of a timeline for Vermithrax's arrival, uh, which does not suggest that it's been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, This is some of the greenest scenery we're going to have for a while. Again, I think a sort of thematic motif as they get closer and closer to where the dragon is. The landscape gets more and more sort of blighted and stony and barren. Um, Speaking of specific locations, the ascent to the lair that we're going to get here uh, is specifically... Uh, at the foot of Triven in Snowdonia, the 15th highest mountain in Wales. Um, It's also said to be the burial place of Sir Bedivere, uh, for what that's worth. Uh, I will say, Galen does seem to demonstrate some genuine bravery here. Uh, I don't think this is just performative fearlessness for the sake of his audience. Um, And it seems less motivated by bravado and more from a genuine curiosity about the dragon and its lair. And I think that does build his character a bit. I never quite liked the size of the entrance to the lair. They, they don't give you a great look at it. There's clearly a big chasm part, but whenever you see humans going in, they seem to be going in through almost like a small fissure, a little cave, um, which I cannot see the big dragon getting out of that we saw earlier. Uh, I don't know if it's just a matter of perspective never quite showing us everything or if they've just really cheated it. Um, but uh, yeah, this layer entrance is, is a, maybe a little bit of a, I wouldn't call it a film flub, but a, a question mark. Another thing that this whole sequence kind of raises Uh, or draws our attention to, um, as far as the movie's execution goes, is that it it can be hard to tell where Vermithrax is supposed to be at any given point in time. Sometimes it's down in the lair. Sometimes it's out and about doing things. Uh, That certainly creates a kind of tension. You don't know where the monster is. But it can also create a bit of confusion, uh, where you don't actually know if you're supposed to know where the monster is, or whether to feel tense or not as people are wandering around uh, you know, on the slope outside the lair. 
And of course, here Galen gets his confirmation that the dragon is down in the lair, a little braver than Bilbo. But he knows exactly how far to push it. He's not venturing all the way down to the burning lake. Of course, that might also give away the game as far as uh, what Hodge's message to him was. Uh, Though, I don't know, he's pretty slow to catch on to that anyway. So, Galen's spell, as best as I can make it out, and as I said, the Latin in the screenplay is different from what he actually says here. He's saying, Tu saxum saxorum, you stone of stones, or you heavy stones, in adversum montum operum da, operum da in the tibulum inquinatum draconis. Face of the mountain, give help in covering up the foul dragon, or something close to that. And again, they're making it nice and obvious that all the power is coming from the amulet and not Galen. Uh, and the nature of the spells uh, in the movie is kind of interesting. Most of them, when you try to translate them, take the form of just commands to the natural world. Ulrich spell in the castle, nunc habiamus lucum et calorum, let us have light and heat. Uh, or his spell in the dagger test, mortem confundit magus, the, the magician confounds death. The last one's not imperative, but uh, like the other spells, it's just very literal. Um, Galen's spell here in particular, uh, it's not like it's a fixed charm that he's memorized and is reciting. Uh, Those words only have relevance in this specific context. Uh, You could even say it's not really a spell. It's more like instructions to his magic artifact um, or things being fed through the artifact to produce this effect. Uh, I'm not well-versed enough in magic history or theory to say if this is usual, uh, or, or rather unusual, or normal. Um, but I find it interesting nonetheless. It certainly feels different from, say, D&D magic. All right, Dragon Defeated. Movie's over. Of course, Galen is the, or sorry, Valerian is the first voice of confidence. And and look how small Galen is there in that shot, dwarfed by the powers he thinks he commands. And more dragon heads entering the screen from the opposite direction this time, Uh, and not in a sort of reverence to the dragon, or at least to the sacrificial ceremony. This time, they're in burnable effigies. So Galen's about to perform a little sleight of hand here. Uh, this is the stuff I, I suspect magic consultant Harold Taylor was brought in for, um, and not, you know, larger theories on the nature or language of spellcasting. Okay. So I'm not entirely sure how to feel about Valerian's uh, coming out as a woman and not a boy here. As a kid... I remember finding it a little bit disappointing that she sheds this norm-defying tomboy side for the markers of a very conventional femininity. 
Uh, I'm sure part of that was my childish bias towards thinking, uh, you know, boyness was cool and girliness was lame, uh, a bias that does not always stay confined to childhood, it must be said. As an adult, I can see two arguments. On the one hand, there is a kind of unsatisfactory theme in seeing someone who is confidently transgressing gender suddenly seeming to embrace gender normativity. Although, really, all she does is just change clothes. Uh, Well, and take on a new status within her community, which is a big deal. Um, But basically, her personality stays the same. She doesn't become some submissive, fragile, you know, exaggerated femme character. She's mostly the same Valerian, just in a different outfit. And that's kind of the other reading. You could read this as a quasi-transgender narrative, where it's not that Valerian is giving up being a tomboy to become a lady. She is a girl or woman who has been compelled for self-preservation to present as male, and now she's finally liberated to present as she is, as a woman, using the cultural codes of her society. So that's the two sides. Is it a disappointing tale of submitting to gender conformity, or a triumphant tale of expressing one's true gender identity? As I said, I don't really know how do I feel about it now. I think I've ended up with just a whole lot of thoughts about it that have supplanted whatever emotional reaction I would have had to this moment originally. It's also worth noting that this movie from 1981 handles its gender-bending plot point with a lot more grace than I think many movies today would do it. Uh, There's no gay panic gag from Galen, uh, which would have happened back in the lake scene, uh, or from any of the townsfolk here. It's all dealt with very matter-of-factly. And the community accepts her with no apparent outrage. Um, What Grail is getting a bit touchy about here is the cheating of the lottery, not any gender transgression. The only real shortcoming of this plot is just that it's a little hard to believe that everyone, uh, except Ulrich, I guess, uh, that they were convinced by the disguise. But again, that's a bit of staged logic I think we just have to roll with. Caitlin Clark, who plays Valerian, does a good performance of the character, but I don't don't think she ever convincingly passes as a, what, 17 or 18-year-old boy? Um, The conversation between Simon, Valerian's father, and Grail introduced the fact that there's a Christian missionary in the village who we're seeing there. In the script, there's a scene as Galen and company arrive in town after the landslide where they encounter Brother Jacopus preaching to a crowd about how the dragon is Lucifer, um, and we get a bit of that speech preserved in his scene later. And when Galen announces that he's killed the dragon, he also declares Christianity to be mere superstition and generally humiliates the preacher. Uh, Without this scene, the beliefs of the community are a little hard to pin down as you watch the movie. Um, As a kid, it seemed clear enough to me that the priest was there as a missionary and the people were in the process of gradually being converted, uh, even without a lot of exposition to lay that out. So I guess that's well done by the filmmakers. But it does seem strange that you have all these people who are presumably pagans at the present moment, but who are also skeptical about magic and wizards, though I guess that's actually not that unrealistic. There are plenty of saga characters who are like that. Uh, But nonetheless, you kind of get left with this impression that the people just don't have any beliefs of their own, really, Uh, and that makes them susceptible to Galen on the one hand and Brother Jacopus on the other. Uh, And, of course, we have the return of Tyrion, um, played fully to highlight the ominous and threatening character of his authority. His visitation here is just about as unwelcome as the dragon's. 
nice bit of light symbolism there with Tyrion turning the spit of the roasting pig. Uh, he also nicely lays out the inherent violence of the system. Um, he, as the kind of Hobbesian enforcer of power, uh, power as brutality, is quite open about wanting to kill Galen the threat. Um, but the king, who provides the facade of legitimacy to power, gets to offer the civilized appearance of playing nice and debonair and civilized. And speaking of the king, I love Cassiodorus's expression there. Um, Peter Eyre, who plays him, does a great job of making this character feel human. It would be easy for him to be more of a preening, hissing, Prince John kind of villain. But he gives us a king who is not evil, but also not good. Uh, he's selfish, but not uncaring about his realm and his people. He's a bit prideful, but he's not stupid. And Galen is making such an ass of himself in this scene. Uh, that also makes Cassiodorus look better for his relative patience with the young magician. And what exactly has Galen's training been? Uh, was Ulrich training him to run a traveling carnival? I mean, he's got stage patter. Of course, so did Ulrich uh, with the whole flash powder grand entrance thing. I don't know if this is an achievement of the film or a kind of misstep, uh, but it really does make you feel okay with the idea of magic dying out in this world. What we see here is a magic that needs to be put out of its misery. Um, so maybe you lose out on the bittersweetness of the elves going off to the Grey Havens, but you do get to feel kind of optimistic for the world at the end, uh, rather than grieving some great lost beauty. Uh, Oh, and right here, Cassidorus reveals to us that he's a second son king, which is also psychologically significant. Uh, it makes him another kind of step down in authority, another example of an unworthy successor to a role, just as Galen is stepping in to fulfill or to fill Ulrich's shoes. And yeah, so Cassidorus is being a bit of a jerk to Galen here, but it's hard not to feel like Galen kind of deserves it. And of course, Cassidorus is basically proven right. Uh, the movie never reveals how many lotteries worth of villagers were killed by the dragon attacks that have been prompted by, or will be prompted by Galen's actions. Um, but it's not hard to imagine that it's a few years worth of additional dead people at least. So this certainly works as a kind of like philosophy 101 you know moral dilemma <laughs> They do another good job of making Peter McNichol look very small in this scene which, I mean, he's not a big guy, but they emphasize it well. Hmm. 
Hmm, what could possibly be stirring under the ground? Unsurprisingly, uh, Galen is unable to get any magical effect uh, without Ulrich's amulet, amulet around his neck. He even gives up on the Latin. Greetings, young master, says Princess Elspeth. My name is Elspeth, daughter of the king. Again, we have Galen pointing out the brutality that lies just below the civilized veneer of royal power. Uh, and Elspeth is a kind of tragic figure, because she's just about the only person in the movie who really believes in that veneer. She gives, her up, she gives herself up to her own destruction because she needs the claims of justice to be real justice. She insists on preserving an integrity that has never really been there. And Galen is basically saying to her here, you know, check your privilege. Uh, of course, I think we'd hate her if she reacted with, you know, well, a player plays the game and I'm a player. So I don't see what narrative alternatives there are for this character. It's also notable that it's the movie's invention that the lottery is rigged. Uh, that's not from the sources. In the St. George tale, the king tries to weasel out of his daughter being selected when it happens, but he never actually cheats in the lottery. So here Cassidorce is trying to turn lead into gold, something that not even Ulrich could do. Um, but other than speaking English, he is essentially using magic the same way as Ulrich and Galen do. He's just issuing commands. Of course, he calls in uh, law and justice to validate his power. Uh, and when he gets burned here, I don't exactly know what that indicates. Is it a kind of intelligent act by the amulet? Uh, as I said, it's implied that Ulrich's spirit or part of it is in the amulet. So is that Ulrich being cheeky? Or is it just Cassiodorus not being an authorized user of the magic artifact and it reacts defensively? Um, of course, we also saw Galen got burned by the amulet when he tried to resurrect Hodge. So maybe it's just... Yeah, how that's how the amulet reacts when it's called upon to perform magic that's beyond its powers. It ends up not taking much to convince Elspeth that she's been the unwitting beneficiary of a rigged system, and I guess that's to her credit. Uh, it is a bit convenient that her first woke act is to release Galen from prison, since the two things aren't directly connected.
<laughs> Galen does not have a way with words, uh, nor a way with women. This whole escape sequence is maybe the clunkiest part of the movie. Uh, but one aspect of that clunkiness is kind of thematically important, which is it gives us all this heroic imagery, uh, especially here of Galen on horseback riding through the castle. Um, but we're getting all of this imagery at the same moment that we realize what a big disaster he has caused uh, by really pissing off the dragon. It's sort of simultaneously inflating and puncturing the image of Galen as great hero. Yeah, so this is all a little bit Errol Flynn. But uh, we also know that Galen would be truly screwed here if it weren't for another incredible convenience in the sequence uh, that that wall just happens to collapse and give him his way out. Um, as I said, not not the most elegant sequence in the film. Good music, though. So, Brother Jacopus is basically about to do the same thing Galen did with the landslide, just using faith instead of magic to try to put an end to the dragon. Uh, and he has no better result. In fact, if anything, it's worse. Uh, Galen at least did bring the cliff face down. Prayer here does nothing. Well, except convert a few people, even as it fails, which is an interesting thing to note. Uh, Brother Jacopus becomes a martyr for his faith, as it were, uh, though I can't think of any examples where martyrs actually died by monsters, especially when the monster is figured as a demon. Sinful humans kill martyrs, but generally a saint is expected to be able to repel a demon. If a saint succumbs to a demon, that suggests a failure of faith that would cancel out their sainthood. Uh, but at any, rate, uh, at any rate, we see that Grail, at least, views Brother Jacobus's courage here as a witness to faith, um, since he takes on the mantle of missionary afterwards. Brother Jacobus there, of course, played by Ian McDermott, who a couple of years later would take the role of the Galactic Emperor Palpatine in Return of the Jedi, uh, and after that, the prequel trilogy. Brother Jacobus also not lacking in confidence. Um, and as with the first uh, sacrifice, the full reveal of the dragon is being withheld. Uh, it comes right to the edge here of being a bit Austin Powersy uh, with how objects are used to block out the dragon, but I think it works. Another nice place to drop the music out. We get Brother Jacopus and then that famous intake of breath. 
um, fire breathing is a trait of medieval dragons, um, but it's secondary to poison breath, uh, which you see much more frequently. Uh, these dragon strafing shots, uh, I'd say, are also some of the weaker effects, especially to a 21st century eye. It's moving a bit fast, and the compositing is a bit obvious. Um, yeah. But this uh, is our first animated shot of the dragon right here, and it looks great. The motion is wonderful and realistic. Uh, it shows what a good job the designers did in creating a dragon whose proportions at least feel appropriate for a giant flying creature. Uh, it's something I don't think four-legged dragons have ever really pulled off on screen. I don't know why they have a big puddle right on the main road into their village. Seems like something they'd want to fill in. Uh, but I guess it does give horsemen a big dramatic thing to gallop through. This is the first that we see that Valerian's father is a blacksmith. And, okay, maybe it is a bit disappointing to see the newly publicly female Valerian in this shot contrasting directly with her father, who's doing very manly work while she does the cooking. Uh, oh well. But Valerian asserts her identity here um, in a moment, even to take up one of the big disadvantages of being a young woman in this particular society, which is being subject to the lottery. In fact, it's a little shocking that they, they don't impose any greater penalty other than from now on she has to participate in the lottery. And out through the puddle again. Uh, this is also another note where the movie feels like maybe it's borrowing a bit too closely from Star Wars. Uh, we basically have a Millennium Falcon smuggler's compartment that the stormtroopers can't find tucked away here under the anvil. But, you know, I'm okay with it. So this is a classic trope, uh, the forging of a special weapon to slay a dragon. Uh, it occurs in Volsunga Saga, uh, in a scene that Tolkien also borrowed from. Sigurd has the broken pieces of his father's sword, broken in a battle with the god Odin. Uh, he has them reforged into a new sword to be used expressly in killing the dragon Fafnir. Uh, and Sigurd tests the sword by slicing through the anvil it was forged on, uh, and we're going to see Galen do exactly that at the end of this whole weaponsmithing montage. Uh, except, Galen's weapon isn't a sword, it's a lance. In the screenplay, it is a sword. Uh, I'm not sure when in the production they changed it, uh, but I think that was the right move. Uh, Galen is never really convincing as a warrior, and I think it's easier to have him poking at the dragon from a distance with this spear, uh, that, that seems more convincing at least, than picturing him trying to get right up into its face with a sword. Uh, I don't know for certain, but I'm pretty, pretty sure this castle shot is a matte painting effect and not a real location. Uh, Ulrich's castle from the beginning of the movie is a real location, uh, Dolwithalin Castle in Wales, built in the 13th century, uh, not the 6th, of course. 
these peasants on the bridge always make me think of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, uh, all the dangling feet, I guess. There was never a Dragon Slayer ride. <laughs> the film wasn't successful enough for that, it, but that would be a fun one to do. They ever made a retro Disneyland for all the less popular franchises? Throw Tron in there. So, uh, power is legitimated through ceremony. And the people's participation gives the ceremony that power. Cassiodorus may have introduced the lottery, but watch how the people take a kind of ownership of it. You know, the lottery is sort of ruling over everyone, uh, even its creator. I wonder if there there's a deliberate homage to the animated Robin Hood with Peter McNichol's big floppy hat disguise as he moves through the town. Hard to say, but I wouldn't put it past a Disney production. Very satisfying tile sound in that bowl, I say as a board gamer. Yeah, so here's the crowd kind of taking ownership of the ceremony. Uh, the script also adds an extra chant in. So after saying, stir the tiles, the crowd cries, bear the arm. And then we see Horserick kind of push his sleeve up. So they really get granular in the steps of this process. I also like how Horserick goes into this first person statement on behalf of the name that's on the tile. Uh, it's a nice detail. And his closing line, and my name is, uh, has a nice echo of medieval riddle language to it. Yeah, and here we see the ceremony sort of exerting that power uh, that subjugates even the people who fancy themselves its masters. And Cassiodorus suspects no uh, treachery. And Cassiodorus gives the name away, uh, Valer or gives the game away. Valerian is perhaps not the best spokesperson for justice and fairness in the lottery, given that she's been cheating it all these years. Uh, her righteous indignation doesn't feel fight doesn't feel quite as earned. Uh, I have to say. Yeah, and that's not the proper protocol, and everybody knows it. 
So we're about to get the revelation of Elspeth's plan. In the screenplay, Elspeth says that rather than putting her name on all the tiles, she has just put in enough tiles to cover all the times that she was left out of the lottery. Which makes a lot more sense, really. Uh, It's a bit of a leap to explain why she decides to make it a 100% probability that she gets sacrificed uh, just because she unfairly, but also unknowingly, avoided risk in past drawings. Uh, It's a little morally draconian, you might say, uh, to insist on her own sacrifice. But I can see how cinematically it's useful, because otherwise you're going to have to get the audience to accept that there was still an element of chance involved that got her name drawn, and that all the other tiles that the king draws out happen to be from the same set that has her name on it, and he doesn't accidentally draw one that actually has a real person's name on it. So it makes the scene easier to execute if she's the only name in the pot. Um, But I think that choice also leaves a kind of lingering question mark around Elspeth's moral calculus here. I guess Galen got really lucky that everyone was distracted by the ceremony in that it enables him to do... Actually, I guess Galen might think he's lucky. Turns out it doesn't matter because he wasn't going to find the amulet anyway. Uh, It gets handed to him. And here Cassiodorus is learning that he is also trapped in the system of power. Uh, He cannot compel his agent of violence to act just by his own personal will and request. The agent is still a servant of the system. And again, great performance here of The King's Desperation by Peter Eyre. Uh, It's a sympathetic desperation. Um, Tyrion becomes the voice of the system here. He's calling the lottery and the detente with the dragon the basis of the king's power. That is what he's built. Cassidorus has two legacies he now has to choose between, the apparatus of his power or his daughter. And he chooses his child. So again, parents and children being a major motif in this movie. Um, Another quick note uh, that I actually missed in the king's speech there about Vermithrax being an old dragon Uh, In the screenplay, it specifies Vermithrax as her. We'd wait her out. I'd live to see the end of her. I don't know how the novelization treats the dragon's sex. I haven't actually read it, but uh, online fan sources that cite it say the dragon is androgynous, uh, but not parthenogenic. It requires another dragon to produce offspring. It seems to me that there's a touch of overzealousness about this uh, in insisting that Vermithrax is not simply female, 
you get that feeling a little bit like child me had about Valerian, that a female dragon just wouldn't be as cool as a not female dragon uh, who you know couldn't be embraced or identified with by a mostly male audience of monster fans. And I'll confess that as a kid, uh, I, I was there. I identified with the dragon and I didn't really want the dragon to be a girl. I used Vermithrax as a username on a number of online services in my teens. Such was my identification. In fact, I kind of progressed through monsters. Uh, I was Godzilla 2 on Quantum Link uh, as a 8 to 10-year-old, uh, because plain Godzilla was already taken. Uh, and then I was Vermithrax on AOL and elsewhere. And I'll say that all through that period, my mental image of the dragon was, at best, sexless. But now, uh, and I think despite whatever canon has been established in these ancillary works, we should embrace Vermithrax as a great female monster. Although, that said, there is a kind of thematic logic to the dragon reproducing in some kind of sexless, arcane way, since she's a counterpart to the sorcerer, who is also creating new sorcerers, or trying to, asexually. So there is a kind of structural elegance there. Um, but like I said, there's this weird no girls allowed kind of vibe that comes off of this insistence on a hermaphroditic dragon uh, that just rubs me the wrong way now. Um, and as we're seeing, even if you quibble about a dragon's sex organs, Vermithrax is a mother uh, and acts as a mother. That's hard to deny. Again, this is one of those moments where it's it's unclear if we're supposed to expect that the dragon is down in the lair. Uh, we don't know what degree of risk Valerian's taking as she goes in. Um, I mean, I think we can say she's pretty brave to do that. And our first glimpse of dragonlings and a successful weapon. So Galen gets one kind of uh, confident send-off. This one goes a little bit differently. I love Valerian's pragmatic pessimism here. Uh, again, it's one of those things that the movie does that I think makes it richer but also probably helped leave audiences a bit unsatisfied uh, in that it evokes all these old-fashioned chivalric tropes, but continually undermines them. Uh, this could be a big, romantic, tear-stained farewell as the hero goes off to battle, but they play it cynically, uh, at least at first. Now, romance does come back, the vitriol does give way to rose petals. Uh, it's got that sort of old screwball comedy meet-cute going on of, you know, you're the most insufferable person in the world. Oh, and now I love you. Um, it uses that plot structure. Uh, but we're expecting to get pumped up for Galen's grand confrontation with the dragon. Uh, and the movie kind of denies that to you with this scene. I will say Valerian's uh, I'm jealous that I can't be the beautiful princess you desire business here. 
uh, is maybe not striking the best notes in the gender roles theme, uh, but whatever. A nice sneer in that line. The screenplay here stresses the and I'm eligible because I'm still a virgin aspect more. Uh, in fact, after a little bit of this business, it goes on to have Valerian say, I'm a virgin and I want you to do something about it, uh, and tells us that after their embrace, uh, that we see reflected in the water they're sitting beside, which of course on the location they've actually shot at, there's no water, um, but we see the reflection of Valerian taking off her clothes, thus indicating that the virginity problem is about to be solved. I like that the, the movie itself leaves, leaves it a bit more subtle and keeps the focus on them realizing their love for each other. Uh, and that helps avoid the implication that Galen's just doing her a favor, you know, that he's having sex with her to save her life, which would be a bit gross. Um, that said, I don't think McNichol and Clark have amazing chemistry on screen, uh, and the, rom the romantic plot is not a strength of this movie, um, but it's serviceable at least. Now we begin the princess's sacrifice. Uh, and there's a real quick thing here that I didn't notice until my most recent viewing. Right right now, they offer Elspeth a black hood to put over her face as she waits to be eaten, and she declines it. Uh, so the victim in the first sacrifice is hooded and then pulls the hood off while she's chained to the post. Um, but this amplifies the theme around Elspeth's character. She has taken off the blinders and wants to see the ugly reality that's been hidden from her. Uh, I have to say, Galen breaks up these proceedings awfully easily, um, but that testifies to the kind of sham power that Chancellor Horserick is wielding here. Ah, but the real power is revealed sitting in the background. It's interesting that Tyrion is holding a torch in this scene, and that Galen asserts himself by setting the proclamation on fire. Horsrick is scared away by fire. Does fire symbolize true authority? Cassiodorus gets burned by the amulet. Brother Jacopus gets burned up by the dragon. Ulrich emerges out of fire. Uh, there might be something here. I think it's really two reasons, Galen, Ulrich and Hodge, and you can't really blame Tyrion for, for Ulrich. Elspeth picks the unexpected ally. Uh, this isn't the most thrilling fight choreography, but I think it does feel realistic for the characters. Especially Galen who needs to be a little clumsy in this scene. Uh, and Elspeth, even when she gets freed here, uh, she continues with the sacrifice. Yeah, boom, she's free. But uh, 
her real manacles are her belief in the justice of the system she's a part of. Uh, and I realize this all smacks of like anarchist cultural criticism, and I'm not trying to you know, occupy the role of an anarchist critic. Uh, I just think these are the overt themes of the film. Uh, the film has a baldly cynical attitude towards authority and systems and people's faith in them. Ah, Tyrion. Thanks the gods, he's definitely not a, con a convert. But he also doesn't believe in magic. Or, I guess, he must believe in it by now, but he has no... He won't put any trust in it. Uh, I don't have a great symbolic reading of Tyrion's death uh, at this moment in terms of power structure and whatnot. Uh, as a kid, I certainly just felt that it seemed especially painful... <laughs> Um, I guess it parallels Hodge taking an arrow to the chest, though, so it serves that revenge motif. Um, and this is one of those moments, in all his furs there, I think Tyrion seems a little animalistic, a little werewolfy, or like a shape-changing berserker. Uh, again, he's a contrast to the silk-robed civilization of Cassiodorus. All right, down into the cave again. Speaking of Vermithrax as female, I guess you could suggest uh, that the cave is uh, not just a chthonic symbol, um, but it's a big vertical opening. That's suggestive of a certain reading. Uh, okay, now this is the stuff. So, this is a Disney film, or co-production. So, theoretically, that makes Elspeth a Disney princess, albeit an oft-overlooked one. And to my knowledge, she's the only Disney princess so far who has gotten her feet chewed off by dragons. Uh, so, if you've got a daughter or niece who's real into this princess stuff, do the right thing, show her this movie. We need more mutilated Princess Elspeth costumes out there and birthday party decorations and everything else. Uh, and if by some chance as an adult you get invited to a Disney princess-themed Halloween party or an event, a wedding or what have you, do it for me. Do it for Medieval Death Trip. Go as Princess Elspeth in a blood-stained gown. Uh, and then explain to everybody who you are because no one's going to know. Uh, as for these dragonlings themselves... I was always a little bothered by how different their proportions are to the grown-up Vermithrax. They're real short and stumpy and definitely feel a bit like Muppets. Um, but I can see what they were going for with a juvenile dragon. Uh, the timeline for when Vermithrax has given birth is certainly left unclear. Uh, did they hatch from eggs? How long ago were the eggs laid? Weeks? But maybe years or even decades? Who knows what a dragon's life cycle is? A uh, part of me wants them to have been born around the same time Galen began apprenticing with Ulrich to maintain this mystical mirroring between the last wizard and the last dragon. Um, but I have to say that seems unlikely. And there she is, poor Princess Elspeth. She doesn't get the most glamorous send-off. Ah, so, the Burning Lake. There are two traditional habitats for dragons in classical and medieval literature. One group lives in water, like the dragon in the St. George tale, uh, but also the Lernian Hydra, the uh, dragon Cadmus kills at Thebes, 
Um, the draconic sea monsters like the Midgard Serpent or the appearance of the, or a Loch Ness monster in the St. Columba legend. Uh, you also have the Lambton Worm, originally fished out of the River Weir and who then grows up in the bottom of a well. Uh, on the other hand, you have dragons that live underground in caves, like Fafnir, uh, as well as the dragon in Beowulf, who lives in a barrow, a, a relic of the pagan past. Uh, Nithogar lives down in uh, underneath Midgard, gnawing the roots of Yggdrasil. Uh, and of course, Smaug takes up residence under a mountain, and in the end, winds up dead at the bottom of a lake. So the film's underground lake is a nice composite of dragon's layers. Uh, and of course, it gives us the paradox of coexisting contraries, fire in water. Uh, and that makes the place magical and uncanny, and reinforces the connection of the dragon with sorcery. Uh, it's also notable, I think, that unlike Smaug or the Beowulf dragon or Fafnir, Vermithrax has no hoard. There's no treasure in this layer, just death. So for one thing, that makes the dragon feel a bit more beast-like. It's unclear how intelligent Vermithrax is. She's apparently able to honor a pact with Cassiodorus, and she's a counterpart to a sorcerer, but we never really see anything that directly indicates more than an animal intelligence. Uh, and the absence of any treasure or any trappings of civilization in the lair reinforce that impression. Um, but this also serves a narrative function. It cleans up character motivations, uh, so there's no additional reason for dragon slaying uh, in terms of profit. Uh, the only thing is the good of the Erlanders. And uh, once again, our view of the dragon is being withheld, but not for much longer. Uh, we're starting out with the life-size animatronics that were made by Industrial Light and Magic. Yeah. I believe that is all an in-camera shot there. You'd be able to recognize 1980s compositing if it wasn't. And this is our first up-close animated model, and it looks good. Uh, except right here, where the waterline it's emerging from is pretty rough, or... More accurately, not rough enough, uh, but that is the limitation of optical compositing in 1981. Uh, but the animation on the dragon is still good. And speaking of good, the dragon scale shield works amazingly well. Good job, Valerian. Uh, without it, our movie would be ending right here. Uh, but back to the animation. As a kid, one of my early career goals was to go into special effects. Uh, I had a big coffee table book on ILM that I analyzed in excruciatingly in excruciating detail, so I didn't need the IMDb trivia page to tell me that Vermithrax was brought to life with a relatively new technique called Go Motion, uh, named in contrast to Stop Motion. With Go Motion, you still film a model or puppet in frame-by-frame -frame increments, but the model is rigged to move a bit during the photography, which creates motion blur. In traditional stop motion, because all the individual frames are pictures of a perfectly still object, they're crisp and sharp, and that gives you the kind of stuttery trademark effect of stop motion. Capture some real in-camera motion blur, and the animation smooths out and looks much more realistic. Uh, and that's what we have in these shots of Vermithrax moving around the cave. Uh, mixed in from time to time with a close-up of a big, um, you know, foam rubber head. Oh, so let's take a second to observe Vermithrax discovering her slaughtered young. Uh, this moment builds a whole lot of sympathy, at least momentary sympathy, for the dragon. It reads as a big mother animal who's 
Fury seems entirely reasonable. Though, I don't know, there's maybe a little glimmer of intelligence beyond just an angry, like, mother bear there, or lioness. Um, and I like this very bat-like movement as she stalks out of the cave. Um, it's great because it doesn't feel very dragon-like. Um, it's recognizable from nature and makes a lot of sense for the creature, but it's not what you expect to see from a dragon. Uh, certainly not if you're, you know, a little kid in 1981 or the early 80s, generally. Uh, but to wrap up on Go Motion, um, it had been tested out the year before on the Imperial Walkers and the Tauntauns in Empire Strikes Back, uh, but this film was its showcase. Uh, and it basically died in the early 90s when ILM screen tested it for Jurassic Park, and the effect couldn't compete with the CGI effects that were also being tested, uh, and which they initially thought weren't going to be good enough. Um, but they were, and that pretty much killed off Go Motion and Stop Motion as mainstream special effects though obviously they live on as techniques for entirely animated films. Uh, and practical animatronics largely followed suit as CGI got better and cheaper. Uh, so given that I pictured myself uh, in a workshop making and puppeteering foam rubber monsters, uh, you know, wedged under three other people working Jabba the Hutt's lower right eyelid, I probably dodged a bullet by going into academia instead, where I'm uh, still struggling to find a full-time position. Maybe I should have gone into dragon slaying. And speaking of dragon slaying, this is Galen's big moment. And he kind of blows it. A nice plan, a good decoy with a shield. Doesn't manage to kill the dragon. Just makes it really angry. And definitely makes Elspeth's sacrifice a total waste. So the movie cheats a bit here. I can't really imagine how Galen escaped that cave and the rage of a mother dragon, uh, but apparently he did. Lost his spear. Um, the shield there looks pretty shot, uh, but he's in pretty good shape, all things considered. Yeah, I guess you can't say he's unscathed, but he's, uh, I think, barely injured would qualify. And we are at, a, at an interesting moment because, you know, narratively speaking, what's the next step? Um, of course, we know. We know it's the ashes. We know the wizard business isn't done with. Um, but they really have exhausted all of the what the the options that are clearly most obvious to the characters. Um, we also might take a note here uh, as the romantic plot line takes the stage again. So, because of Galen's failure, Valerian says their only option is to leave the land. Let's just remember that when we see what their happy ending is at the closing credit roll. Reminding us of that particular point, magic is dying out. And again, the, he's kind of suggesting Cassie plan. Just wait long enough and outlive the dragon. 
Yeah, and so magic is dying and Christianity is taking hold in its place. Not exactly a fervent Christianity on his part, but nonetheless. There's our ravens indicating a desolate early morning setting again. Yep, and as our magician leaves town, church takes hold. Uh, which we had no indication earlier in the movie that a whole church had actually been built there. So maybe I'm overestimating how unconverted the village was when Brother Jacopus showed up. Ah, so the final act of the movie and its climax is signaled by a classic astrological marvel, an eclipse, uh, which traditionally marks a change in the fortunes of a kingdom. So quite an appropriate choice by the filmmakers. Not to mention it makes some great mood lighting. It also doesn't instill a whole lot of confidence in Galen that he'd completely forgotten the whole burning water thing, you know, earlier in the movie when he saw all the burning water. Um, he has to be specifically prompted by another amulet vision. Uh, and as I said earlier, I don't really know why Ulrich left this plan as a riddle for Galen to work out. Um, there doesn't seem to be any real logic to that other than, you know, narrative necessity. Yep, Brother Grail now replaces Brother Jacophus. I guess it's a sign of progress in their relationship. Now Valerian specifically says, I won't let you kill yourself, since I think at least on two other points so far, she's sort of said, fine, go kill yourself. Um, but she does associate bravery with masculinity here. Uh, not great, but period appropriate, I guess. Um, and at least she's using that as a logic for her own empowerment and agency, maybe. And yet, the sight of another dead woman produces probably the first real fear we've seen from Valerian. Uh, I do kind of think from this moment forward, her character suffers... Uh, and she's made into an obstacle for Galen that he has to work against. Um, I guess that's how the screenwriters decided to build tension for the two of them during the climax, while Ulrich and Vermithrax are up in the sky. But it's not very satisfying. Uh, maybe Tyrion could have survived to the final act to be the threat that makes it hard to smash the amulet. Um, but I guess it's too late to backseat drive this thing now. Galen does know what to say, which is a bit surprising. Now, I didn't quite catch all the words from that, but it's from something, I'm guessing, from Ash's uh, Vita Nova, New Life? Something like that. 
I do like the fire going out on the lake. It's a nice manifestation of this great magical power at work and how it utterly transforms the mood of the, of the cave, of the lair. And of course, it gives us a lighting palette that can really emphasize that uncanny green. Effects-wise, I'm not sure how much of this was done practically and how much is optical. That looks like a practical kind of fiery whirlwind. It's pretty cool. Um, that's obviously layered in. And I... I I have to say, I like that. I kind of like, speaking of Tron, the sort of master control program version of Ulrich spinning around there. I'm less fond of this horizontal spinning. I think it looks a little silly, especially since he's just going to wind up vertical again in a second. Um, don't really understand what the purpose of that was. Ulrich says here, Sic reddit magus... Ex terra mortuorum. Thus the magician returns from the land of the dead. Uh, you get some major Gandalf the White vibes going off here. Note Galen doesn't thank God, uh, just some abstract creative powers. Very natural philosopher of him. Uh, I also like that Ulrich's first request is for some food. That actually accords with classical conjurings of the Shades of the Dead. Uh, so Galen confesses he's a failure. Ulrich assures him he's not. Uh, I don't know. I'll also say, as a kid, I never felt entirely convinced by this resurrection. I felt like it was incomplete or half illusory or something, like he's an apparition or a revenant rather than just old Ulrich back again. Uh, I guess actually Gandalf the White kind of feels a little bit like that too. It's a Resurrection that's also somehow a kind of transformation. But I, I don't, the script doesn't really seem to suggest that. These shots of the, dra of the dragon flying do a good job of making Vermithrax feel majestic. Uh, for as little as we actually see her, the film really treats the dragon with cinematic love and respect. Uh, and I think that's why she holds such a powerful position in so many fantasy fans' memories. Uh, the eclipse, of course, creates another uncanny paradox, the darkness of night during the height of day. You have all these images of counterparts coming together. Uh, part of it is just the architecture of myth, as any good structuralist will tell you, but certainly the screenwriters deserve some credit for bringing out these elements. Um, and here, we're about to see one more contrary um, emphasized as Ulrich reminds us of another binary that was crossed, uh, male to female. That's a nice little moment too, that they don't, there's no line of dialogue there. We're just left to interpret, uh, Ulrich's reaction to the cross. Uh, so, Ulrich kept Galen in the dark about the plan to actually uh, resurrect him. But now, when he could just say, when the time is right, destroy the amulet, 
he gives more information than is strictly necessary and seems to make Galen maybe a bit reticent, at least initially. Um, this is also not the most elegant plot structuring, uh, plot structuring, only now introducing the idea that destroying the amulet will destroy the wizard and also the dragon. Uh, that is the big solution to the problem, and it only just now kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, though at least the idea of the link between wizard and dragon has been established, so destroying them both simultaneously has been foreshadowed. Um, but the amulet being the vehicle for this is not as well set up um, before Ulrich's explanation here. Um, and I have to say we just passed by it, but having seen firsthand the big 2017 eclipse, uh, their eclipse effects here are pretty good. Uh, back to the premise of this battle. Oh, there's our fear in a dracon again. Um, I guess it's made clear that uh, Galen has to explode the wizard when the dragon has him to kill the dragon with the physical damage of the explosion in Ulrich's final self-sacrifice. Uh, and if he doesn't time it just right, then the dragon will survive. As a kid, I never saw it that way. Uh, maybe I was too influenced by viewings of the Dark Crystal, but I thought of the bond between wizard and dragon as being direct, uh, like that between the Skeksis and the Mystics, that their life force is knotted together. And so the destruction of the wizard is inherently the mutual destruction of the dragon and marks the extinguishing of magic in the world. And I think on a symbolic level, that is the message. Um, but I have to recognize now that narratively, they're clearly suggesting that Vermithrax could definitely survive this fight and continue to oppress the realm, even with the wizard dead, uh, which kind of undermines all these other signs of an identity between Ulrich and Vermithrax. Uh, so, oh well. Uh, conjuring a storm is certainly one of the practices ascribed to witches and warlocks in medieval accounts, uh, and in The Tempest too, for that matter. Um, one of the things Ulrich says while he's conjuring the storm is fulmin, which just means lightning. Again, he's just naming the thing that he's conjuring. Uh, knowing what the plan is, I'm not entirely sure what he's trying to achieve with his attacks on the dragon, with lightning and such. Uh, I suppose he's just trying to, pr to provoke it enough that it picks him up and allows for the final detonation. Uh, the score does a lot of really good work here in this climax. Um, the dragon's theme is especially striking with those deep bass note, or brass notes. Um, by the way, the soundtrack's available on Spotify and is well worth a listen. I give it a thumbs up. Some interesting percussion in that score as well. This was another moment that I think I misunderstood for a long time. I remember thinking that Galen's pained no here, right there. Uh, when Valerian wants to destroy the amulet, that this was part of his resistance to the idea of killing his master. Uh, Rewatching it, I guess I see that Galen's basically on board with the plan the whole time. Um, he's just waiting for the right timing. And again, I like the vulnerability we see from Ulrich here. He's not quite steady on his feet. He gets wounded. Um, he's not Ben Kenobi gracefully vanishing beneath Darth Vader's lightsaber. Uh, and Ulrich, of course, goes out with a bang, uh, a big one. And speaking of fire and authority, Ulrich is not 
burned by the flames. Take that for what you will. As I mentioned before, it's a bit frustrating that Galen's big conflict here, while Ulrich is doing the actual dragon fighting up on the mountaintop, is asserting his superior wisdom over Valerian's wrong-headed nagging. Uh, it's not a great look for our heroic couple, and like I said, it would have been nicer if they were working together to fight off Tyrion or prevent Grail, the newly minted Christian zealot, from seizing this you know, amulet of witchcraft or whatever. Uh, but no, we get bickering spouses for our climax. Um, and in terms of the cynicism towards authority theme, it's a bit weird that Valerian is the one kind of stressing blindly following orders. You know, he told you to smash it. Don't use your own judgments. Just do what he said and right now. Um, but in a way, she has spent the movie looking for an authority figure to put her faith in. She led the expedition to Ulrich Tower, Ulrich's Tower. She demanded the integrity of the lottery. She takes the cross from her father. Despite her other transgressive attitudes, she's not an anarchist. And it's interesting that the only figure she never shows faith in or respects the authority of is Galen. Um, but that might also be the glimmer of hope for their relationship, that their meeting as equals. Uh, that said, a little bit of mutual respect would be more promising, but I guess we'll take what we can get. Uh, and here it comes, the end. I guess Galen is hesitating. Uh, is it because he doesn't want to kill his surrogate father? Or is it Frodo at Mount Doom? He doesn't want to give up this power that could be his? Kaboom! I guess that's Galen's final act of strength. Choosing to kill his father uh, and or kill magic. Uh, I haven't talked about the parenting theme as much as maybe it deserves. Uh, I'm not much of a Freudian, and that is the territory it lies in, uh, though it certainly is also an aspect of relationships with authority figures. By the end, both Ulrich and Vermithrax are basically impotent creatures. Their attempts at reproduction have failed. Ulrich failed at least to produce another sorcerer, though he did leave behind a person. Um, but anyway, there's sort of nothing left for them but to die and make room for a new generation that they are disconnected from. They are not part of the cycle of life. They are dead ends. Husks, you might say. Uh, smoldering husks. And this is all wonderfully gruesome. Uh, as a kid, I always kind of wished that the, the dragon had been basically vaporized uh, in the explosion. That felt like the magically appropriate degree of annihilation for a death that ends magic in the world. So to have so much burnt-up dragon left over on the ground seemed sloppy, I guess. Uh, but without it, we wouldn't have this scene, which is gold. Um... This is the movie's message about the falseness of institutional authority crystallized. Um, here in the background, we have the Christians taking credit for the death of the dragon. And while they're doing that, Cassiodorus is riding up uh, for a wonderful little ceremony. Civilization meets nature as silk shoes meet mud. Um, so yeah, yeah. The, I love this. The expression on his face seem seems like he is genuinely in awe of himself and his achievement, rather than being a little ashamed. Um, but here he is being ritually proclaimed a dragon slayer. 
for sticking a sword he can barely wield uh, about an inch into a smoking carcass. As a kid, this just made me bristle with righteous indignation, um, but now I can you know, watch it as a great black comedy. Again, it's not the most crowd-pleasing message to end your movie with, and it might not have helped uh, how this film performed at the box office, but I think it is the right ending for this story. And also, by the way, Cassiodorus is another generational dead end. He's lost his daughter, and Grail has embraced the life of a presumably celibate priest, though 6th century, that wouldn't have necessarily been the case. Um, and really, Galen and Valerian are our only representatives of you know, hope for the continuation of life you know, in the narrative, which all plays into very traditional romance symbolism, of course. Uh, and maybe there is some magic left in the world. Uh, the film lets this coincidence of finding the horse play ambiguously. The script actually has Valerian wish for a horse. The horse appears. She looks at Galen and asks, Did you? And he answers, No, it must have been wandering lost or wild. And she says, Wait a minute, I just wished for a horse and here it is. And the last line of the movie would have been Galen saying, You don't want to wish it gone, do you? And they ride off into the sunset. So the script's ending sort of needles and undermines this little hope for magic uh, a bit more than the filmed version does. I think the film version is probably a bit more elegant with its ending, and it leaves open the possibility for a sequel, you know, Galen Bradwarden giant killer or something. Um, but even setting aside the issue of box office failure, this movie isn't built for a franchise. Uh, thematically, I think sequels would kind of break it. It's, it's a nicely completed arc. Well, I guess. Uh, I did ask you to keep in mind what Valerian said their failure to slay the dragon meant for them. Because Galen failed, they're going to have to leave the country. Well, here, the dragon slain, the land seems modestly more green and fertile and wholesome than it did the day before. Uh, and partly that's because they're now filming on the Isle of Skye rather than in North Wales. Um, but what are our heroes doing? They're leaving the country. And on foot, uh, at the start at least. In the earlier scene, they were getting on a boat to leave. Maybe to sail back to Cragenmore, Ulrich's fortress. Uh, they actually seem a little worse off in this ending. But what else could the screenwriters do? Uh, I don't think it would have worked to have them pull a Samwise Gamgee and end the movie with them kissing at the threshold of the blacksmith shop and pulling the door closed behind them. Uh, this is the kind of adventure that needs the riding off into the sunset ending. You know, a triumphant present, sort of, uh, before an unknown future of further adventures. And the score helps to convey some of that ambiguity back in that moment. It plays as a kind of parody of a triumphant fanfare or a jaunty romantic tune, but all dissonant and strained. And while the credits roll, I was going to pick on Galen some more as a hero. You know, what does he really learn? Did he learn anything other than he'll never be the thing he wanted to be? Uh, in fact, he had to destroy the thing he wanted to be. Is that going to mellow him out, teach him a bit of humility, or is he just going to wind up bitter and unfulfilled? Uh, but I think I'm going to leave poor Galen alone. His true burden is knowing that he wasn't the star of his movie. Some animated models and a giant hydraulic puppet were. But if you're going to be upstaged by a movie monster, Vermithrax pejorative is a pretty special one to get. Well, that brings this commentary track to an end. I hope you enjoyed it. 
If you listened without watching the movie, then I hope it encourages you to go seek out the movie and give it another watch or even a first watch. Uh, if somehow you're listening to this and you're not familiar with my show, Medieval Death Trip, uh, then one, I'm curious how you got this, uh, and two, you can find out more about us at MedievalDeathTrip.com or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other podcast players. Thanks go out to all my patrons from Patreon who help make this all possible. Keep your lances sharp and your shields well-scaled, and thanks for listening.